If you've got your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of Galatians. If you want to use one of the pew Bibles, uh, we've got two colors. The black ones will match the same version that I'm reading. Uh, and if you're in that one, it's page 972. The red ones are page 783. But we're in... Hmm? All right. Uh, I always like to turn this light on, like, right when I have an idea, so it gives you the illusion that I had a, a great epiphany. Hmm? Right, yeah, just turn the light on. All right, so we're in Galatians. I think I have all my lights on now. All right, we're good to go. Uh, we started this book last week, and one of the things I wanted to point out to everybody as we began this book is that Galatians is a fighting letter. It's, it, Paul is hot. He is, uh, he is on fire. He is, uh, he is in a controversy, and it's justifiable. He's worked very hard to, and sacrificed a lot to go establish these churches in the region of Galatia, a number of churches, and, and they began well. They trusted in Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. They changed their lives, and they were following after the teaching of, uh, of Paul, which is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then, a while later, Paul heard that the folks that had begun well had now had false uh, teachers come in and, and tell them, you know, Paul didn't give you the whole message, in addition to believing in Jesus, which is good, yes, believe in Jesus, but in addition to that, you also uh, have to basically become a Jew. You have to do all these other things. You have to get circumcised, if that's applicable for you. You've got to follow the food laws. Uh, you've got to follow all these ceremonial laws and stuff. And that's what God wrote in the Old Testament. Of course, you still have to do that. Uh, if you really want to be saved, you need Jesus plus uh, doing all these other things. Uh, so the basic equation was Paul was saying, uh, you need Jesus, uh, belief in Jesus equals salvation plus good works. That is, when you believe in Jesus, you are saved, and then out of that flows good works. Whereas these folks were saying, believe in Jesus plus good works, then equals salvation. See, they, they flipped the story. And so Paul, at the very beginning, begins to fight, to fight for the truth of the gospel, and he says, again, just at the very beginning, he flows, he overflows and says, here's the gospel in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself uh, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. He says, this is what I'm fighting about. I'm fighting for the gospel that Jesus gave himself for you to deliver you from your sins. And all you have to do is put your faith in Christ, receive that gospel, and you are saved. Now as we begin to move into the rest of the book here, we're going to look at 6 through 10 today, but mostly focusing on verse 10. We're going to see uh, that he continues to bring the fight. Okay, let's, let's read in verses 6 through 10, Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. I want to point out to you, first of all, 
again, that this book is a fighting book. Okay? Uh, if you look in Paul's letters, uh, I, I told you this before, if, if you look at in, in, the, in the greeting, you notice in the greeting of all of Paul's letters, he just says, some variation of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but Galatians was unique because he overflows then and, and recapitulates the gospel. He says, I, in addition to my standard greeting, I need to tell you the gospel because you don't understand it yet, apparently. Uh, but then there's another difference as you keep reading. Uh, in Paul's epistles, generally, uh, you, you, you read through and you see the beginning. He's got his opening formula from Paul to whoever, grace and peace to you. The next thing he always does is he says something like, I thank God for you in my prayers. I always thank God for you. And he lists some things. I thank God that your testimony is active in the world. I thank God for the way in which you've provided a gift for me. I, th I thank God for you for something. This is his standard formula. You don't see that here. You say, from, from Paul to the Galatians, grace and peace to you. Let me remind you about the gospel. And then, I am astonished. His, his I am thankful is replaced with I am astonished because he, he doesn't have anything to be thankful about right now. He's not doing a little pat, pat, pat. You know, let, let me affirm you, let me affirm you, and then tell you what you've done wrong. No, he's like, let's, let's cut to the chase. This is a letter about what you have done wrong. He said, I'm astonished. Uh, I think we'll go back next week and be a little more in-depth in verses 6 through 9, but I just want to point out here that He's using very strong language as well. Of course, that, that word, I'm astonished, I, I marvel, I can't believe that you're doing this. And then at the end of, of verses 8 and 9, he says, if anyone preaches a gospel different than what I preach to you, let him be accursed. May the wrath of God be on that person. This is, this is strong, right? This is heavy language. He's fighting, he's saying, here's the battle lines. There's me, there's them. They should be cursed by God because of what they're doing. I'm astonished. You see this throughout this book. Paul is talking tough. Uh, in chapter 2, in verses 11 through 14, and we'll eventually get here, but he, he recounts a time when he also confronted Peter on the very same issue. That's some boldness, isn't it? Going up to Peter and saying, you're wrong about this. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Pretty tough talk. My personal favorite, maybe because I'm, I'm not really out of junior high yet, is in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says to the, to the false, false prophets, I wish that they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. That, that's tough talk. So they want to circumcise you, I hope they just emasculate themselves. Paul is being very tough here. He's being very aggressive. He's drawing some battle lines, saying there's a fight and it is on. But something that's very amazing, I think, about the tone of this letter is that it's not only tough. Okay? It wouldn't be surprising if it was only tough, if Paul only said hard things, if he only was berating them like an authoritarian father, just condemning, 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 saying you're worthless, how do you, how do, you do this? Just, it, that's not the tone, though. It's not simply tough. It's also incredibly tender. Uh, you really see Paul's heart begin to break or, or to bleed for these people in chapter 4. Um, chapter 4, he begins to pour out his heart for them, and, and you see in verse 19, he uses this language of, of parenthood, even like a mother. He says, My little children, 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Okay, he's, he's in anguish. He's like a, a mother trying to give birth. And he's saying, I, I love you. You're my little children, but I don't understand what's going on. And he's got this intense longing for them. You see, he's, he's passionate. He's fighting. He's tough precisely because he loves them so much. He's, he's, he's very tough in his language, but he's also very tender. You also see in chapter 5 this incredible statement in verse 14. Paul says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, that we understand that. that that's right. That's what Jesus said. Now, that's what Leviticus 19 says. Love your neighbor as yourself. But do you ever stop and think about that? Like, So Paul here at the end of Galatians is saying the whole law is summed up in this one word, love your neighbors yourself. Uh, just two verses earlier, he said, I wish that these folks would emasculate themselves. Uh, just in chapter 3, he said to these people, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I, I just wonder. what. Personally, you put yourself in, that, in, in those shoes. Put yourself in that position of, of someone coming to you and saying, you foolish person, who has bewitched you? I'm astonished at how quickly you've deserted the gospel. What is wrong with you? You are wrong. Now, when you hear that, when you hear somebody saying stuff like that to you, do you think, wow, how much that person must love me? Is that what you think? I mean, or do, you, do you have the capacity to, to, to have that together? To think, I mean, is, is Paul screwing up here? Is he, is he now saying a command in, verse, in chapter 5 that he's not living out in the first part of the book? You know, he's giving this command at the end. He's saying the whole law is summed up in this. Love your neighbors yourself. Do that, Galatians. But is he failing to do that throughout the rest of the book when he's speaking toughly to the Galatians? When he's using harsh language and drawing firm battle lines and saying some people are wrong, some people are right, you need to change? I don't think so. I think Paul's just as inspired in the first half of this book as he is in the end. See, it's very hard to do, but we need to get that category in our minds of being tough and tender at the same time, right? Of, of being truthful and also being loving. It's very hard to hold together. It, it's, it's easy to go one way or another, okay? It's easy to just be tough. It's easy to just turn off your heart and to not care about another person and, and to not care about how something makes them feel or not have any empathy or put yourself in their shoes and just say what is true. It's like the authoritarian parent who will say to the kid as they're spanking them, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. Right? That's the, the parent saying to the kid, it's going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Because, you know, frankly, I'm just, I'm not getting spanked and I don't really care that you get hurt, so I'm just going to bring it. Okay? It's easy. It's simple. You just turn off your heart. You just don't care. And you can be truthful. You can be tough. It's also very easy to just be tender. It's very easy to, uh, to just let your heart overflow, to just empathize with the person so much that you, just, you put yourself in their shoes so much or you, you just don't want to experience any pain and so you don't want any pain for anyone else and so you just say, um, you just say okay, um, everything's fine. There's no truth. It's like the parent saying to the kid, um, this is going to hurt me so much to discipline you that I'm not going to do it.
then that kind of parent exists as well. The permissive parent who allows the child to do whatever they want, never speaks any truth in their life, and, and they end up spoiled. You know, that's, that's why we call it spoiled. Spoiled is not a fun thing grandparents do. Spoiling is when you ruin your child because you fail to discipline them. Okay, but that happens. It's easy. It's easy to be tough. Just to turn off your heart, be the authoritarian parent, be the authoritarian person, and just speak truth as you see it. It's easy to just be tender, to never confront, to never say anything hard, to never bring any discipline because you don't want to experience the pain of what might happen. But what you need, and every good parent recognizes this, what you need, and I'm not just speaking about parents, but what you need is truth with love. What you need is loving truth, toughness and tenderness, not in, not in a balanced proportion, like sometimes you're mean and sometimes you're nice, but that as the mixture of toughness and tenderness together, that the truth that you speak is loving truth and the love that you demonstrate is true love. Like the parent who says that cliche, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Well, if that's true, why do you do it? Because you love the child because the pain is necessary. See, that's what we see Paul doing in this letter so wonderfully, is bringing the truth, bringing the fight, bringing the controversy, not backing down, but not because he's a jerk, precisely because he loves these Galatians so much and he loves the gospel. He can bring this mixture of toughness and tenderness, of truth and love, What I want to do this morning is key in on verse 10. Because I, I told you that this is hard. You know it's hard. You know it's hard to have them both at the same time. You say, how can you possibly be firm, and, and hard-hearted and soft-hearted at the same time? Is that possible? H- how can you be true and loving? I think verse 10 gives us the secret. I think this is Paul saying at the very beginning of the letter, here's, here's, here's my worldview. Here's the secret, here's what I've discovered that enables me to speak this way to you and to do it out of love. The secret is that he's not living to please people. He's not even living to please himself. He's, He's living to please God. Look at verse 10 again. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, Here's my Here's my manifesto. I'm not here to serve man. I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. And that's what enables him to have this very difficult mixture of truth and love together. So I want to look at this uh, in three steps. First, we can't live to please people. Verse 10, Paul gives a couple options. He says you can live to please people or you can live to please God. Either or. You can live to please people or live to please God. And I'm going to contend you cannot live to please people. It's not a viable option. Now, when I I say you can't live to please people, you can't live for that, that's a difference, okay, from enjoying pleasing people. Living to please people is different from enjoying to please people. We're wired to enjoy to please people. Kids love pleasing their parents. Um, You know, you like to get a good performance review at work. Uh, I enjoy it when people say, hey, that was a good sermon. Okay, I, I like it. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's a reason why Facebook has a like button and not a dislike button. Okay, because people like to be liked. It's good for the product. Okay, it, and it's okay. We're wired that way. That's God designed us so that we would enjoy serving one another and being served by one another. 
But the problem comes, like everything, when you take that good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, where instead of just enjoying pleasing people, you live for it. It becomes your, uh, your, your center, your, the center of your universe. It becomes your idol. And I think that's what the, the opponents were kind of accusing Paul of doing. They're coming in to, uh, to these various churches and saying, yeah, yeah, we know about Paul. You know what, Paul just, here's the deal about Paul. He likes to please people. I mean, when he goes different places, he, he kind of changes his message depending on what the audience is. Uh, he, he knew that you guys were Gentiles and, and he didn't want to make you mad, so he didn't tell you all the stuff about the fact that you have to follow the law now, that you have to be a Jew. He just told you about Jesus. Because uh, he, he just likes to please people, so he changes his message depending on where he is. He sacrificed his truth. He wasn't willing to be the, the hard uh, teacher like we are and tell you the stuff you really have to do. He just wanted to win you over by telling you part of the gospel. And so Paul here at the beginning of his letter replies, and he says, if that were true, would I be saying things like this? If, if, if that were true that I was just out here to please people, would I be saying like, may they be accursed and I am astonished and you just wait until you get to the stuff I've got later in this letter? Would he be saying stuff like that? No. But that's what happens, is that when you live to please people, truth becomes the first thing to be sacrificed. And pastors who live to please people uh, will quickly stop preaching on unpopular topics like hell or sexuality. Uh, corporate leaders who live to please the stockholders will quickly begin to fudge the books and shade numbers so they get the right reports that they want. That's not hypothetical. We've seen that. Uh, parents who are unwilling to discipline their children because um, they're afraid their kids will get angry. Families even that will enable alcoholics or destructive behavior because they're unwilling to, to challenge the equilibrium and, not, and make somebody upset. See, if you're afraid, if you're dominated by pleasing people, then truth becomes negotiable. You change what you say depending on where you are and who you're talking to. You're always reading the face of the person you're communicating with to see if this is going over well. You're checking the polls. Uh, you're taking the pulse. You're watching the wind. Where is it blowing? What am I supposed to say? What am I allowed to say? What am I not allowed to say? You, the, the truth is a slave to public opinion. So if you want to have truth, truth with love, well, if you just live to please people, you sacrifice truth. And what you're left with then is just a love that's a, a fake love. It's not a real love. It's a poor imitation. Uh, See, so if you try to please people, you sacrifice truth. But, but even beyond that, it's a fool's errand. Uh, to try to please people, you'll never do it. You, you'll never, ever accomplish it. You, you cannot do it. It's, it's impossible. There's a, a, a pamphlet written by a Puritan um, that, that I'm sure has saved my ministry um, and has been very, very important in changing the direction of my life. It's by a guy named Richard Baxter. It's got a great title. It's called Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing. Okay. Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing. It's by a great Puritan named Richard Baxter. And, and he just goes through point after point after point, just pulling back the veil, saying, look, if you're trying to please people, if you're living for that audience of people, it's never going to happen. Here's, a, here's an excerpt for you. He's, he's talking about the folly of trying to please people. He gives an illustration of like 
giving money to beggars. He says, if you're trying to please people, you are like one that has but 12 pennies in his purse, and a thousand beggars come about him for it, and everyone will be displeased if you have not it all. If you resolve to give all that you have to the poor, if you do it to please God, you may attain your end. But if you do it to please them, when you've pleased those few that you gave it to, perhaps twice as many will revile or curse you because they had nothing. It says, the beggar that arrives first will proclaim you liberal, and the beggar that arrives too late will proclaim you cheap and unmerciful. And so you'll have more to offend and dishonor you than to comfort you by their praise, if that must be your comfort. See, that's just one picture. He's saying, look, there's so many people, so many people out there for you to please. Even if you pour out yourself, give all your money, give everything you have to please some, those who do not get any of you will be disappointed. If you're living for the praise of man, there will be always many more people out there to, uh, to criticize and be disappointed in you than there will be to affirm and comfort you. See, you can't live to please people. If you do it, you sacrifice truth, and it's just not possible. But you also can't live to please yourself. Now, Paul doesn't mention that specifically here, but I have to talk about it because that is the alternative our society presents. There will be plenty of people in our society who agree with what I've said. You cannot live to please people, right? That's conventional knowledge. You can't live to please people. Here's the rest of it. You can't live to please people. What you need to do is live to please yourself. Right? You can't answer to all those people outside of you. What you need to do is you need to make sure that you uh, are pleased with who you are, that you can, can look at yourself in the morning and, and, and be confident in who you are. See, your problem is that you don't have enough self-esteem. That's your problem. See, don't live to please people. Please yourself. You need to think more highly of yourself. You need to have a better view of yourself. That's what the answer is. Right? That's what society says. I don't think I really need to prove that to you. I mean, it's, just, it's just second nature, right? We hear, we hear horror stories in the news of some person going off and, and some killing rampage, and the question everybody asks is, well, I wonder what, he, what his childhood was like. You know, well, he must have not had a good home. He must have had a bad upbringing. He must not have thought well about himself, because if that person had high self-esteem, then clearly they wouldn't have done this horrible thing. I mean, that's just, that's just familiar. That's just how we, that's our knee-jerk reaction. But I don't think the problem with all uh, dictators and megalomaniacs is that they thought too lowly of themselves, right? The problem with Hitler is not that he thought too lowly of himself. The problem with Hitler is that he thought he was God. The problem with, the problem with people is not th that they think too lowly of themselves. One of the big problems with us is that we think too highly of ourselves. See, the, the solution to pleasing people is not to live to please yourself, if, if you do that, then you sacrifice real love. Right? Pleasing people, you sacrifice truth, but when you're pleasing yourself, you sacrifice love. Because you don't care about other people. All you care about is yourself. So yeah, I'm just going to go, I'm going to tell the truth all the time, or at least the truth as I see it. I'm going to criticize, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, take people down, I'm going to say whatever I have to say to put myself forward, because I'm not living for other people, I'm just living for me. Uh, that's not a solution. That's just selfishness. Okay? Um, you haven't solved the problem. You've just become a jerk. If you try to live to please yourself, you lose love. And, and like with pleasing people, pleasing yourself doesn't work either. 
It doesn't actually work. It's just as fruitless and just as hopeless as trying to please other people. You can't please yourself. Um, You you may think uh, that Madonna, for example, is someone who might fit in that category of someone who has emphatically said, I don't care what people think, I'm going to live for myself. Right? Madonna. She's someone who's, you know, eschewed cultural norms, says I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to live the life I want to live, I'm going to live for myself. Here's a quote from her in an interview from Vogue magazine. She says, "My drive in life comes from being a fear. My, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will." It's pretty candid. I mean, it always shocks me when people will speak so honestly about themselves. And yet, time and time again, I read articles and stories about people who have achieved what we would consider greatness. Greatness in sports. Uh, Jerry West in basketball, pinnacle of his profession. He's the logo of the NBA, for crying out loud. Uh, you know, and, and, and you read his life story. It's the same thing. What drove him to achieve greatness? The fact that he was never satisfied. You know, you, you read about the people who achieve greatness in this life, and it's a broken record. I don't know how many stories people have to read before they realize you can get to the pinnacle. You can strive so hard. What pushes you there most of the time is that you are never satisfied. You're never satisfied with yourself. It just doesn't work. We're not wired that way. We're not created to be satisfied uh, by, by pleasing ourselves. You can try and try and try, and you can even get the world to look at you and think, wow, what a success. But the universal testimony of humans who have done that route and tried that way is that it doesn't work. See, if you try to please yourself, you sacrifice love, and like pleasing other people, it's just as fruitless. So what's left? Well, what's left is what Paul says here in Galatians 1.10. He says what's left is to please God. So you have to. It's the only option for fruitful life. It's the only option for for satisfaction. It's what we are made for. We are made to please God. Verse 10, he says, Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I seeking to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, they're, they're mutually exclusive. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot do both. You cannot live to please other people. You cannot live to please yourself and at the same time be a servant of Christ. And if you are a servant of Christ, that means uh, foregoing attempts to please other people and attempts to live for yourself. But it's also the secret to abundant life. It's the secret to be having this, this sort of love and truth together. There's another great passage on this in Paul, and I'll have you flip there because it, it sums it up really nicely. Just flip back to 1 Corinthians. It's you know, about a book back to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to point out two verses for you here. Paul talking on the same theme, making the same points because he's consistent. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. If you're not there, you can just listen. He says, But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I think that's brilliant. He lays it all out right there, right? He says, I, it's a very small thing for me to be judged by any human court. I don't care what people think. I don't, I don't care what public opinion is. But then he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. You know, he, he's not saying, I don't care what people think because I know I'm all right. He says, I don't care what people think, and I don't even judge myself. I don't even put myself in the docket and say, Paul, you doing all right today? All right, we're good. No, he doesn't do that. He says, instead, um, it is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul says, there's only one verdict that matters. There's only one audience that matters, and it's not me, and it's not other people, it's God. He says, it's the Lord who judges me. For believers, this is incredibly comforting, right? Because what's the message of Galatians? That when the Lord looks at you, if you put your faith in Jesus, when the Lord looks at you and he says, here's my verdict of you, it's you're not guilty anymore, right? Because Jesus Christ took your sins. Jesus Christ took all of your failings. He took all of your unrighteousness on himself. He rescued you from your sins. He put all of his righteousness on you. So when God looks at you in this judgment, he says, you're perfect. You're not guilty. I accept you with the love that I have for my son. It's incredibly liberating. See, that's the secret. That's the secret to life. I hope I'm not overstating that. <laughs> but that's the secret to life, that you're not judging yourself. You're not living for other people. You're living before God, and because you put your faith in Jesus, God has already given his verdict. He says, you are accepted and dearly loved. Here's Richard Baxter again. He says, a humbled soul that has felt what it is to have displeased God and what it is to be under his curse and what it is to be reconciled to him by the death and intercession of Jesus Christ is so taken up in seeking the favor of God and so troubled with every fear of his displeasure and is so delighted with the sense of his love as that he can scarce have while to mind so small a matter as the favor or displeasure of man. You get that? He's saying the, the person who has been humbled by God, who understands that, that they're a sinner and that they have, they have the wrath of God resting on them, but who has also accepted the gospel and seen the love and the favor of God pour into their lives, a person who has received that doesn't even have time to care about such a small thing as what another person might think of them. He says God's favor is enough for him and so precious to him that if he find he has this, so small a matter as the favor of man will scarcely be missed. If God loves you, and he does, then it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what other people think of you because you have been judged by God. And when he does that, he looks at Jesus Christ and he says, you're accepted. See, this whole truth with love thing this is what the gospel is. I mean, it, it's the gospel in action, okay? That's what God does for us when he proclaims the gospel to us. He doesn't give a mixture of truth and love. He gives us truth and love together, right? He begins with truth, just like Paul's doing in Galatians. He says, uh, here's the hard news. Here's the bad news. You're a sinner. 
You are separated from me. The wrath of God rests on you because you are so bad that you can't save yourself. Okay, that's, that's bad news. That's where the gospel starts. And, and you might think, and some people do think, how could God ever say such a thing about me? How could God be so unloving as to say that anybody is deserving of death and hell? How can you be loving and be so harsh? But here's the love of God. He tells us the truth, and it's a loving truth. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for this, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Get that? Truth and love. Loving truth, toughness and tenderness. God says, here's the truth about you. Here's the bad news. You deserve to die. You've got no hope in this world. But here's the good news. I love you so much, I'm going to take care of that problem for you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to reconcile you. You don't have to do any of it yourself. See, when you get that in your heart, when you get that gospel in your heart, the fact that God has already said that bad news about you and answered it with his good news, okay, when you get that in your heart, then you become a person who can receive criticism, first of all. You become the sort of person who can read Galatians and say, yeah, yeah, I, I need that rebuke. You become the sort of person who can have someone else come up to you with the, with the friendly wounds of a friend who loves you and say, here's something you need to change in your life. You can receive that news because you've already accepted the worst news about yourself. Okay? It's not shocking that you have failures in your life still. It's not shocking that you still have problems and you still need to be rebuked for sin in your life. It shouldn't shock us because we've already agreed with God, if we're Christians, we've already agreed that we're hopeless apart from him, that we're condemned sinners, that the only thing we deserve is hell. And so to hear criticism doesn't shake us. It doesn't rock us to our core because our self-identity is not based on being perfect or pleasing other people or pleasing ourselves. It's God who judges us and his verdict is in. The other thing is that when we get this truth in our heart, we can become like Paul, the sort of people who are loving truth-tellers, true lovers, tough and tender at the same time. We're not slaves anymore to pleasing people. We're not afraid of making other people angry. We're not afraid if we're reviled or not liked or if people say bad things about us because God loves us. His verdict is in. It's the only one that counts. He'll judge you on the basis of the finished work of Christ, not on what this other person thinks about you. At the same time, as we speak the truth, because we're not afraid of the consequences, we speak the truth in love, not in pride, not in self-justification, not because we're trying to please ourselves by putting other people down, but because we've been humbled by the cross. We recognize that we're a sinner saved only by grace, and as the love of Christ overflows our hearts, we want that truth that he's given us to transform their lives as well. We'll live out the gospel. Living out the gospel means we do the same thing that God did for us. We bring the truth to bear, but out of love. This is what Paul's doing in Galatians. This is his motivation. Yeah, he's talking tough. Yeah, he's bringing hard news and challenging things. That doesn't mean he's not loving. He's doing it precisely because he's loving. He's imitating God in the way he communicates the gospel to us. So Paul's doing in Galatians. That's what God has done for us. And, and I, I pray that as we get this gospel into our hearts, that we will become the kind of people who can do that for one another. Giving and receiving constructive, loving, truth-telling 
toughness and tenderness together, truth and love. Let's pray. Father, this is a, it is a very hard thing to do, and yet we're grateful that though the gospel um, can be hard to live out, it is incredibly simple to understand. Um, Christian life is not easy, but it is simple. We just need to understand your love for us. We need to understand our sinful condition, the forgiveness that you've given us through Jesus Christ, um, and, then t- and the love that you have for us going forward. Uh, I pray that that would get in our hearts, that we would understand that, and that one of the fruits that that would bear in our lives and in our congregation is that we would be able to receive and give loving truth-telling. You know, I, I know how hard it is to be a parent, and I know my own failings in this area. Um, I pray that you would help me, help all the other parents, grandparents in this congregation, to have this mixture of truth and love as we raise children and those in our care. Uh, it's hard to be in leadership. I pray for everyone here who's in leadership in whatever sphere, whether it's church or work or the home, that you would help all of us in leadership to apply this truth, that we would live out truth and love for those that we lead. Lord, it's hard to be a follower. It's hard to receive criticism. And so for everyone here who's a a follower and has someone over them who gives criticism, Lord, would you help us to have the understanding that the criticism of others is not the end of the world and that we can respond to it with humility and grace and love. Lord, would you take this truth and apply it into our lives because it's everywhere. Help us to live out this principle of love and truth together, receiving and giving truthful, loving, and loving truth-telling. I pray that you would work through your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.